spirituality allows me, has allowed me, another access point to regulate the harm that Indigenous and Black and disabled people often experience in galleries, curatorial spaces, and institutions. Welcome to Intention, a podcast presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, where we speak with artists about their art and practice. Just a note on the timing of this recording. In this episode, Raven Davis mentions that they have artwork featured in Nuit Blanche, which took place on September 23rd, 2023. Note that this episode is being released after that event. For Anishinaabe artist Raven Davis, there's literally no separation between their art and their cultural, spiritual, and social life. For Davis, art making is both ritual and practice, rooted in traditions, stories, and experiences that span generations and geographies. We often think of galleries and museums as the places where we engage with art. But Davis has shown us that art is so much more than viewing works in a white cube. Raven Davis is a two-spirit, trans, disabled, multidisciplinary artist and educator. Challenging systemic oppression, they fuse narratives of colonization, race, gender, and two-spirit indigiqueer identity into their work. Davis's performance practice bravely embodies their lived experience, their relationship to colonial systems, intergenerational histories, lands, lives, and futures. Raven, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Neil. Your mother, who you've written about extensively, gifted you art as a life practice. And I wondered if you could share some of the enduring lessons that your mother shared with you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, First off, thank you for beginning this interview with my mother. Uh, It's always so nice to honor her in this way. She's an incredible artist herself. Um, Years ago, she would actually uh, cycle my brother and I across a city from the Humber River all the way to the Harborfront Center to take us to the open art studio days that they had for children on Sunday afternoons. And so there was this practice of returning to art, not just for, you know, the purpose of spending a beautiful Sunday afternoon, but actually for the purpose of creating with intent that we had a place to go to and there was a journey to get there that that bike ride down Etienne Brule Park all the way down to the South Kingsway and across the city mm-hmm. was part of that process it was like gaining that excitement to you know reach the destination of the Harborfront Center um, she taught me the importance of land for art making, food, and also healing through plant medicines. Though mm-hmm. she never took me aside and gave me an art lesson per se, like here is a T-square, this is what you can do with it. But right. she taught me through practical hands-on engagement to the land and with materials such as clay, charcoal, and paint. And through yeah, many precious moments of creative inquiry. At the time, did you have a sense that you were learning how to do art, how to be an artist? Or did it take uh, some distance, perhaps, some some time to reflect back on those 
times with your mother and realizing, wow, I was being brought into this amazing practice, this way of thinking through art? Yeah, no, it was so it was so intrinsic to my childhood. Like there was like so many times she like set spaces in the apartment for creation for herself. Specifically working with clay, she was also a very good drawer, architectural drawer. So there was always like materials and tools around her workspace, which for mm-hmm. me as a child kind of exemplified that there is a space to make work. You need tools to make work. Like it's serious business. Like it's it's not mm-hmm. like I just go into my toy box and I take out, you know, a little package of crayons but this is actually there's a purpose to these materials there's a purpose to these tools and so as a kid I, I kind of recognize the importance of, of what it takes to be an artist even without like you said those those teachings you've written somewhere that all of this experience that you had amounted to your education in art and I think perhaps you said it sort of tongue in cheek, but um, it, it was something like, you know, I earned my PhD. And my mother <laughs> gifted me a PhD. I, you know, and I wondered, did this rich experience preclude you going down a more typical path of, you know, going to the art college, et cetera? Did you feel as though you didn't need it because you had this this rich childhood and exposure? That was a, a really special article I wrote, yeah, for her. Um, it's my mother gave mm-hmm. me my MFA, my indigenous MFA, yes. you know, and, and that was, you know, just a play on how many times I've been told I'm not an artist because I don't have academia behind me or how many times I was told that I'm not a curator because I didn't get my MFA or I didn't go to school or, or this and that. And in fact... We have an opportunity to access how we are in relationship to our art practices and our curatorial practices, how we show work, how we show each other's work that I didn't see reflected in academia. It wasn't that I didn't value what was being taught there. It was like there was gaps in that information. There was gaps in that teaching. And in fact, the practices of how I was being taught either to be an artist or or to show work publicly in a group format, let's say as a group exhibit, have all been from like lived experience, from been working with other artists and smaller like kind of grassroots arts organizations such as Ampava in Toronto, which has been around for quite a long time. You've discussed your art and its connection to spirituality. Uh, can you share how your art practice is, is also a spiritual one? Sure. Well, first off, my connection to religion and spirituality hasn't always been a great one. I definitely mm-hmm. have had to work to find a sweet spot of prayer and ceremony without fear. Similar to many Indigenous people and as one of the direct costs of genocide, my mother didn't grow up with ceremony and also grew up going to a church. As she got older, she revolted against the church and reached for ritual, ceremony, and spirituality through astrology, witchcraft, and the almanac. When I was about, I would say, 13, 14, I would take the subway to the Friendship Center, and through programming they offered, 
I found a balance with prayer, protocol, and ceremony that wasn't rooted in fear, but instead in love. So I'd stopped going to the church then, and I invited my mom to actually join me at the Friendship Center to show her we do have ways. I also began to forgive my mother for reaching for what she could to fulfill the inherent desire to connect to spirituality with no support. She still raised me in believing, you know, in the power of the universe, in magic, in ritual, in belief in energy greater than I. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for many years since then, I've attended Medewin and Anishinaabe ceremonies all over Ontario and the U.S., visiting with elders, being an elder's helper, and practicing plant medicine. It's probably been over 35 years now I've been practicing old ways. And recently, with the guidance of elders, have also been reclaiming protocols for two-spirit ceremony. My connection to the spirituality informs every aspect of my life, including my art practice. It's something that has supported me in surviving an industry that doesn't care about if you prayed before you install a media piece or spent the last week on the land embodying knowledge that the art world rarely values. They just want you to be there on stage, performing to an audience for a ticket fee. Spirituality allows me, has allowed me, another access point to regulate the harm that Indigenous and Black and disabled people often experience in galleries, curatorial spaces, and institutions. In 2016, you were nominated for the Sylvie Art uh, Prize, a huge recognition, and that was for a performance titled It's Not Your Fault, which deals with the histories of murdered and missing Indigenous women in Canada and some of the awful responses you encountered in online uh, comment forums regarding that history. I just wondered how it felt to be nominated for that prestigious nomination for that particular work. And I wondered if there was any mixed feelings about that kind of uh, mainstream recognition for the difficult subject matter you were bringing out in your performance. Yeah, I definitely have a lot of mixed feelings. <laughs> First mm-hmm. off, for context, this happened two months. This happened in 2016, in the February, where I was nominated Um, But the performance actually happened a couple months before that in 2015. It was a time that the government announced they would finally do an inquiry on missing and murdered Indigenous children, women, and two-spirit people. It was at a time many Canadians felt the status quo in galleries and institutions and academia was totally fine, which unfortunately still many people do. When it was questioned... It's usually said by Indigenous and Black artists who continually risk their livelihood to be treated equitably. You know, often we're seen as a nuisance, difficult to work with, or often let go conveniently from positions where administrators decide not to receive funding. It was also four years before the death of George Floyd. And so many of these institutions who carried out employment equity practices from the early 90s now had to revisit exactly the policy, the outdated policies to put them in place. So there were conversations around intergenerational violence and the impacts on education and opportunities afforded to Indigenous people, 
but there wasn't a consorted effort by Canadians to bring about the awareness and the actual change that is required to embody the mindset of what decolonizing reconciliation and reparations looks like, especially in the art world. And a part of that change is required is to uphold Indigenous pedagogy, intellectual knowledge that can't be necessarily summed up in a book. So since then, many people have also learned that if we say we're including with people with disabilities, it means that the age category must be withdrawn because our learning isn't linear like they want us to believe. So I was incredibly honored to be thought of and considered for the Sylvia Award. And if anyone knows me, I often rebel against competitions of like, who's the greatest artist or who's the greatest activist? Because my relationship to my art practice is greater than what I make with my hands. It's one deeply connected to my family and my children and my community. It's how I walk in this world. I can't separate it, nor do I want to. It's mm-hmm. also the reciprocity I have my, for myself, knowing I need my life experiences to authentically make the work that I do. At the same time that you got that recognition, you must have had feelings of whether you were being brought into a kind of politics of performative acknowledgements or you know, we, we see this pattern sometimes where an Indigenous artist or a Black artist will be given an award or a recognition, but nothing substantive changes in the institutions exactly. from which the, these awards come. So I wondered if you were grappling with that at the time. Oh, yeah. fully. Yeah. I was fully aware of of the possibility of, of that happening. Like you said, it's Black and Indigenous artists are often tokenized in, in those situations. Also... I critique large corporations always mm-hmm. around their mm-hmm. philanthropy, you know, when, when it is performative. Here, we're giving you a donation, checking off a box, and we get this, like, pretty healthy tax benefit from this donation, yeah. you know. So when, when people do give out these awards, that is it. It's a one-time, This here's your money, go make your work. It's not necessarily... Mm-hmm meaningful or sustainable and and it just it actually just continues to pit us against each other which is not something i want to do your photographic work men and what translated to save for later includes a series of images where you are pictured in these choreographed poses alongside a, a common filing cabinet within various coastal settings and the work really demonstrates how the body's knowledge, Indigenous knowledge in particular, and Indigenous experiences mm-hmm. cannot be understood or stored or filed away, as it were, like other knowledges. And I wondered if you could discuss that work and its origin. Sure. Um, Manwar Mad is a series of photographs I took along the eastern seaboard of the Atlantic Ocean. At the time, I was researching how memory is stored on a biological level in our bodies and intergenerationally. I am an avid researcher in the archives, <laughs> so anytime I can get to the archives, I am so happy. And mm-hmm. I know that the archives hold a collection of very curated moments of our history. Not all has been saved, not all has been recorded, and not all has been deemed worthy of being recorded. 
And that mm-hmm. is a lot of many Black and Indigenous and disabled artists' experiences within the archives because it just wasn't valued as such. So my excitement for the archives in history is one of connecting how, when, and who between the spaces of what's not in the archives. So Menwamad translates to to save for later. That's the direct translation. Mm-hmm. Further, I was exploring the relationship to monuments and how monuments have fixed moments of time and stone for us to commemorate. So I used my body, my lived experience, and the theories of epigenetic inheritance to engage with movement, my body, and the land that, as you've mentioned, cannot be contained or transcribed and held in an archive institution um, or carved into a stone as a legacy piece. I greatly admire how you don't seem to flinch at all from being called an activist alongside being an artist. A lot of artists that I, I know um, kind of want to run away from that, that label. You seem to embrace the idea of art as, as political, but I wonder, has there been times when uh, being called an activist uh, has led to misreadings of your work, um, a misinterpretation of of your practice? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. first of all, I, I do other work besides just political work. But with that aside, a large part of my practice is quite political. Mm-hmm. I've definitely experienced many people who get their backs up when I say I'm an activist. I also get the same looks from people when I say I'm an abolitionist. For many people, they see this as an adversarial position, which is really unfortunate. I parallel the term activist to feminist in the same way that we've deemed individuals who are speaking up again for human rights and equity when everyone should see that value. There was a time no one wanted to say they were feminist. You know, Mm -hmm. they had as soon as you said you were a feminist back in the early 90s, 80s, people had this like picture, you know, of what that person looks like. I don't even need to say the description. Everyone now is thinking, (laughs) when you say you're a feminist, what comes to mind? So now, after all these years realizing, actually, feminists, oh yeah, we're just talking about equality here. Like, it's just just basic human rights, you know? Now so many people, including a lot of men, are are like, yeah, I'm a feminist. This is what I stand by. And so the term activist for me is simply a cinnamon for human rights equity advocate. Again, it's not much an identity for me, but a way of how I move in this world within professional spaces, with my art practice, and in community. It's also... Um, often uses an identity by those who want to perform equity. So I take the time to talk to students, usually about being an activist and altering the energetic charge on the actual word, moving to a place of compassion and into action. Because we don't have the time to debate words and their meanings when so much action is required to keep us safe and alive. Black and Indigenous artists have had fraught histories with art institutions. We've touched a little bit on that so far in our discussion. So we won't go into that long and and difficult history today. But but I'm interested in how 
people who are interested in art, art enthusiasts, regardless of their level of, of knowledge of art, how can they engage meaningfully, do you think, with Indigenous art beyond galleries and museums? So getting beyond that space that's often problematic in so many ways. What would you say to someone who's interested in Indigenous art, who wants to engage with the art in a genuine way? Yeah, um, to meaningfully engage with Indigenous artists should include a self-critical assessment of how you engage with Indigenous people outside of your workplaces, in your friends Mm -hmm. and family circle. What I can offer is don't put Indigenous or disabled people in positions to check off equity markers when institutions Mm -hmm. are not ready, equipped, or even have the capacity to make the changes required. What we've seen in George Floyd is a major uptake by institutions and organizations to check off their equity practices by filling these temporary positions. We've experienced and seen complete boards of directors collapse and positions opened up for Indigenous and Black people in galleries. However, for the most part, many of these actions have been and continue to be performative, not sustainable, and far from equitable. What this has created is a lot of hesitation by many Indigenous artists to continue to put themselves in spaces that will inevitably cause harm due to non-equitable institutional practices and policies and those willing to uphold them. I think for me, meaningful engagement requires a complete overhaul of governance policies and practices that speak to equitable hiring and retaining Black and Indigenous artists professionals, you know, shifting financial resources, you know, kind of like putting a stop to the tokenism and performative sol- solidarity. And that mostly it requires years of practice because we haven't gotten it right in the past and we continue to make mistakes. So it requires a level of stamina and strength to do this work that not a lot of yeah. people are up for. It requires being in really muddy, muddy water and uncomfortable conversations And a lot of people would prefer just to give an award, give up money, give a temporary position to check off these markers, but not actually willing to do the meaningful work to engage, retain, promote, or even keep Indigenous and Black disabled artists safe in their workplaces. There's also the question of time. Like, this is not something you can do over a short period of time. This is a, a deep, long-standing, long-term commitment if we're going to do this kind of engagement right. And and most institutions don't seem to have that willingness to invest that time. Yeah, I think it's willingness. And I think it's also just, I mean, we're working in a, in a capitalist world. A lot of these institutions run they're corporations, you know, people don't have time for the emotionality of what's happened to an artist. Like, let's get on, keep going. Capitalism works on time. It works on a very yeah. linear time frame, you know, like this goals, yeah. measurements, things that we have, outcomes, outcomes we have to yeah. meet by a certain yeah. time. And yeah. they're just, okay, well, we got to hire Indigenous and Black art, okay, well, let's just get five in in the next five years. Let's go from there. And actually what yeah. is required is so much greater. It, yeah. And it also requires 
this sensitivity and capacity within the people that are building, creating these spaces, because that's what's happening, Absolutely. is that the, the spaces are at times being opened, but the actual infrastructure, the institutional memory, the policies that have been placed that people have been upholding for years on end have not been touched. So you're trying to make change in these institutions that are not capable, are not, do not have the capacity to do this work properly. So it does take a lot of time. I want to shift to what you're working on now. Is there anything that you'd like to highlight in terms of what's coming up for you? Yeah, I'm very excited to be participating in Nuit Blanche this year, thanks to the wonderful Bonnie Devine, who is outside of my mother, one of my greatest inspirations, confidence, and sister. Bonnie has curated like an incredible selection of Indigenous artists from Toronto, including Duke Redward, Marie Hupfield, Ange Loft, and of course, her own work. Um, It'll be on September 23rd. Um, Bonnie and I will be installing her second piece, A Circle of Inquiry, which is actually the second installment since her exhibit, which I curated at the Mississauga Art Gallery in 2018. I'm also working on a a pretty major research project for the next year and a half, and we'll be continuing to work on my next body of work, uh, hopefully completed by spring 2024. Amazing. And that piece uh, for Nuit Blanche's performance, installation work, give us yeah. give us a sneak preview. For sure, for sure. Um, it's like a collection, like every artist is doing their own thing. For me personally, I do have one media piece that will be projected on the building next to the mm-hmm. space, and there will be a performance. It's specifically in regards to missing and murdered Indigenous women, children, two-spirit people, and specifically about the women that have been left in the landfill out west. And, I mean, we haven't even touched this, but landfills across this country that have been used as as burial (laughs) for our kin, for our people. So... It is responding to that. It is trying to bring awareness, you know, hopefully getting garnering more support for this issue. Yeah, so that that's what I'm working on. Amazing. Yeah, thank you. We like to ask our guests to pose a question, which we then put to another artist. So our, our previous guest asked, who are your main supports? And do you think it's important that we recognize the people who support us? I have a hunch on how, how oh you're going to answer this. Yeah, you know my answer. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't do this without the help of others. I mean, I wouldn't be mm-hmm. where I am without the help of others. Um, obviously, my mother, um, my children, people like Bonnie that have been in my life for n- numerous years, that have acted not just as support, but as accountability. They've witnessed me in community. They've witnessed my practice kind of evolving over the years. So I feel a responsibility to the people that have given me teachings and and knowledge to uphold what they've shared with me, to value it. And that, for me, is that Indigenous pedagogy that is not acknowledged by the institution at the same level as what we do outside of it. 
Raven, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I could go on and on. Before I let you go, though, I'm wondering if you could provide us with a question that we in turn will ask a future guest on the podcast. It can be about anything, really. Okay. I mean, the environment is and should always be a priority, but I mean, it is and always should be a priority. I guess I'll just leave it at that. You know, without knowing the next artist, I'd like to ask, you know, what is your connection and responsibility to the environment? You know, how does the environment come into play within your artistic practice? Okay, thank you for this. Thank you, Neil. It's been an absolute pleasure. Intention, presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, is made possible with the support of Canada Council for the Arts. We thank the diverse mix of Canadian contemporary artists for sharing more about their lives and work. This episode was hosted and created by Neil Price in collaboration with the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery team, Beverly Cheng, Daria Sposobna, and Zachary Skola-Allison. This show was produced by the team at Edit Audio. This episode was edited, mixed, and mastered by Ali Sirwa. Our executive producer is Steph Colburn, and our production manager is Kathleen Specker. Show music is by No Cliché and Mopawa Mumu. Mumu.